At some point growing up, we all come to terms with the sad reality that life just isn't fair. And that truth comes at us in a million different ways. I'm sure that at some point you've been blamed for something you didn't do. Or you've watched as someone else got the credit for something good you did. I'm sure you've, you've worked really hard at something, given your very best to it, only to watch someone else kind of waltz along and surpass you effortlessly. They just have a talent that requires no hard work at all. Isn't that frustrating? Uh, if you've got siblings, one or more siblings, then you know they probably got away with stuff that you couldn't, that you never did. Or they got the new clothes and you got their hand-me-downs. Uh, Y'all, sometimes cheaters do win. Sometimes bad guys don't get caught. Life isn't always fair. Now, for the most part, this is just something we learn to live with. You know, we adjust accordingly because most of the issues of fairness and unfairness they're, they're relatively minor. We can overcome them. But what if you experienced something so unfair, so egregious, that it changed the entire course of your life? See, that's what our parable today is all about. This is actually part two of the parable that we began looking at last week. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. It's Jesus' longest and most detailed parable. And, and at, at its root, it's a story that Jesus told to picture for us the gracious heart of God. But this parable raises a troubling question. Is God fair? Does God treat us fairly? Our knee-jerk reaction to that question may be to say, well, of course God is fair. Or at least he ought to be. If anyone should be fair, it would be God. But this story is meant to, to challenge and to reshape our view of things, our view of fairness. Y'all, as, as far as I know, you can send me a message and correct me, but as far as I know, nowhere in the Bible are we told that God is fair. And hopefully, here in the next half an hour or so, we'll come around to seeing that as a good thing rather than a bad thing. God is not fair, and in the end, I hope we'll be grateful for that. So let's, let's quickly recap where we've been. Uh, the context of this great parable is given to us at the beginning of Luke 15. This has been the, the guiding context for us the last three weeks now. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. What's going on here? Luke tells us, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So the upright religious people couldn't fathom a man of God embracing and fellowshipping with sinners. Something's wrong with this picture. These people, the tax collectors and sinners, they should be condemned, not accepted. And so in response to their grumbling, 
Jesus tells a series of parables about lost things that are found. There's a lost sheep, a lost coin, and the final parable here concerns a lost son. A father has two sons, Jesus tells us, beginning in verse 11. And we'll just recap it here. In this case, the father represents God, and the sons are represented in Jesus' audience. The younger son, of course, is the sinner. He's the tax collector, the sinner, the person who's made ruin of his life through bad choices. And in the course of the story, this younger son rejects his father, rebels against his family. He takes his share of the inheritance and runs off to a far country where he wastes it all on disgraceful behavior. And in the end, the young man finds himself penniless and starving, suffering the consequences of his sin. So he makes up his mind that he's going to go home and he's going to ask his father for a job in hopes of paying back what he has wasted. But while the son was still a long way off, Jesus tells us, his father saw him and ran with compassion to him. He hugged his son, he kissed him, and he refused to hire him as a servant. He restores him as a son. He forgives all his sin, he covers all his shame, and prepares the fattened calf to celebrate. This son of mine was dead, the father says, but is alive again. He was lost, but now has been found. And y'all, this this story is a picture of God's lavish grace for sinners. No matter how far we may have run from God, no matter what we've done, there is mercy and forgiveness abounding for anyone who receives Jesus by faith. Now, that's a perfect way for this parable to end, don't you think? And yet, it's not the end. Jesus doesn't stop there. Because remember, there are two sons. And and only now, toward the end of the story, does the older son, the older brother, come into focus. Remember, the older son, he is the good, moral, religious one. He's the good kid. And so let's see how he responds to all that has just transpired. Look at verse 25 of Luke 15 with me. And I'm just going to read an extended section here, almost to the very end of the chapter, so that we get the full picture. Now, the man's older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. 
Y'all, I've read this parable many times. And every time, without fail, I find myself getting angry at this point in the story. And I'm not angry at the older brother. I'm angry for the older brother. Because in all honesty, his feelings, his response, this makes sense to me. Think this through for a moment. The younger son has done everything in his power to destroy this family, to shame them and then abandon them. The younger son broke the father's heart into a million pieces. He thumbed his nose at his older brother and left the older brother to pick up all the slack. He burned these bridges behind him. Surely the older son is thinking he's never going to see the younger one again. And good riddance, by the way, to that wicked, lazy, selfish punk. Well, then one day, totally out of the blue, the older son comes in from the fields. What's he doing? He's working. He's hot and sweaty, I'm sure, from a hard day of work. And he hears Beyonce. Music and dancing coming from the house. Wait, what's going on? Oh, didn't you hear? Your brother came home. And your father was so overjoyed that he killed the fattened calf, and he's throwing a party. Would you go in and party like nothing happened? Would you just head on in and pull up a chair? I wouldn't. And, and we can almost hear the anguish in the older son's voice when he says to his dad, Look, my whole life I've done the right thing. I've honored you. I've kept my responsibilities. When, when he left us drowning in hurt and shame, I stayed faithful and pure. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't drop the ball. I picked up the slack and worked all the more, and you never even gave me a little credit. But when this son of yours waltzes back home with nothing to show for himself, you kill the fattened calf for him? Where's my party, Dad? Why do you love him so much more than you love me? See, this story makes me angry because it offends my sense of fairness. Doesn't the older son make a good point? Doesn't it, doesn't it make something rise up in your heart too? Doesn't it make you angry? But y'all, let's dig a little deeper here. Um, and, and let me go ahead and tell you up front what's true about this older son. The older son is every bit as lost as his younger brother was. The older son is, in fact, far away from the father, just in a different way. Not far away geographically, not far away morally, but he's far from the father nonetheless. And there are, there are two clear indicators in what Jesus 
has just told us two traps that you and I can fall into as to what's really going on in the son's heart. And we've got to dig deeper here because our, our perspective might be, well, no, the older son's the good one. How can he be lost? Well, take a look at what's really going on. There's a lot more, by the way, to this than just these two issues. But these two rise to the surface for me, and I think they'll help us to understand uh, the deeper reality, uh, the, the deeper truth behind the older son, the Pharisees and the scribes, the good moral religious people that are grumbling at the grace of Jesus. What's going on here? Well, y'all, the, the older son's first problem, as I see it, is what we call entitlement. Entitlement says, I deserve a certain level of treatment because of who I am and because of what I've done. I deserve because I've been good. Remember, that's the older son's argument to the father. All these years, I have served you. But you know what? That word serve, as Luke records it in Greek, that is actually the word for slave. And so what the, what the older son's really saying is, for so many years I've slaved for you. He treats it like such a burden. And I've never neglected a command of yours. Now, can that possibly be true? Have you ever known a child who never neglected a command, never disobeyed? His parents, her parents? No, of course not. But, but that, this is the son's way of stacking the deck in his favor. He's playing up his own righteousness. He's exaggerating in order to make his point because he feels entitled. I've slaved for you. I've always obeyed you. And I'm still waiting on my reward. Y'all, this is what entitlement produces. I deserve because of what I've done. And when self-righteous, entitled people speak back to God, that's the kind of stuff we catch ourselves saying, or at least thinking internally. You know how long I've been going to church? And, and, and how much money I've given? And how, how I served in the preschool? And how many mission projects I was a part of? And how many 5Ks for lung cancer I've walked? Or whatever it may be. We're stacking the deck. You know what, God? I could have run with the bad crowd in college and had a whole lot of fun, but I didn't. I was at the Baptist Student Union every Friday for lunch. I didn't do what the other kids were doing because I'm good. My neighbor down the street cheated on his wife. I would never do that. I don't cuss, drink, smoke, or chew, and I don't hang out with girls that do. And because of that, all that, God, you owe me. God owes me. Things should go well for me. I should be recognized. I should be rewarded. But if God doesn't give us what we think we deserve, if God doesn't meet us in our place of entitlement, we get angry, we get resentful because God's not doing what he's supposed to. God's not holding up his end of the bargain. He's not being fair. That's the older son's concern. He's the one who deserves the party. He's the one who's been good and faithful. But y'all, look, look quickly here at verse 31. Uh, at the first part of the father's response, and how incredibly tender the father is 
to this angry, self-righteous son. He said to him, Son, child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. Now notice, the father doesn't make any mention of duty. He speaks only of relationship. He doesn't speak about fairness here. He talks about fellowship, relationship, fellowship. Son, you've always had me. My love, my provision, all that's mine is yours. Now, what's the father communicating to his son who's just exploded on him? Yo, God's desire for you is not that you stack the deck with good behaviors, with good morality, with good religion, so that you can put God in your debt, so that we can earn God's favor, so that he has to bless me. No. God's heart is for you to know him, to have relationship with him. And y'all, relationship with God is an end in itself. The older son doesn't see it that way, clearly. The older son, he wants reward. He wants recognition. He wants what's coming to him. He wants the father's good things because he's earned them. But y'all, what the father says in response, relationship with God is an end in itself. There's nothing more to seek. There's nothing more that we need. Truly, that's what it, what it means to know God. We're not, we don't come to God to get something else We come to God for God. And yet the older son, we see it, he wasn't motivated that way. He wasn't motivated by love and relationship. He was motivated by reward and recognition and fairness. And when he didn't get what he thought he deserved, he exploded. Y'all, this story, this latter part of the story, touches a nerve for me that the, the first part doesn't so much. I know what it is to be the younger son. Certainly, I've, I've done all sorts of sinful, rebellious things in my life. Yes. But I, I, what the older son has experienced, how he feels, that, that resonates with me more. I struggle more with entitlement than I do overt rebellion. And so here's the risk, y'all, really and truly. An entitled person finds no joy in simply knowing God. An entitled person will not take any joy in just knowing God, having a relationship with God. Why not? Because in this case, my religion is really about me and not about Jesus. What I do, and therefore what I deserve. And y'all, with that attitude, you can come to church every single Sunday and still be outside of relationship with God. See, that was the Pharisee's problem. Remember, the older son represents the Pharisees. This is what Jesus is trying to get into their heads and their hearts. They were religious in every way, good and moral in every way, and yet they didn't know God, and therefore they were lost. Their goodness was not ultimately to their credit. 
because they were good for their own sakes. They were not good in response to the love and grace of their Heavenly Father. And all that will do in the end is produce entitlement, not relationship. So y'all, the older son, we see it, he was entitled. But then secondly, second point, he was also ungracious. Ungracious. Remember what he says about his brother. He says, when this son of yours came, who devoured your wealth with sinful living, you prepared the fattened calf for him. Notice, he refuses to call him my brother. He says with contempt, this son of yours. Y'all, everyone else is celebrating this younger son's repentance and redemption, but the older son has no category for this kind of celebration. He has no concept of this kind of mercy, because for the older son, there's only black and white. There's only right and wrong. There's only reward and punishment. Good things are not supposed to come to bad people. Parties are not supposed to be thrown for for younger sons, for people like this. That's not fair. And y'all, this is one of the greatest threats for nice, moral, religious people. That we come to see the world just like the older brother. We judge value, human value, we judge according to our own standard, the standard that we create. And so whether it be about religion or morality or even race or class or politics or whatever, I see myself as right and others are wrong. I meet the standard. They don't. I'm good. They're bad. What makes me different is what makes me better. So I hold myself up as superior to others, and in that case, there's no room in my heart for grace. I can't see them the way God sees them because I've established myself as better, as above them. And y'all, this is especially hard when someone else gets the grace and the blessing that we think we deserve. What if somebody else is treated the way I deserve to be treated? I deserve it. They don't. You notice the older brother? That's his his whole concern. It's the celebration. It's the fattened calf. He's getting what I deserve. You notice he has no concern at all for his younger brother. He doesn't care that he's alive. He doesn't care that he's back safe and sound, that he's repented, that he's been restored, redeemed. All he cares about is the celebration, the recognition that he deserves and it's been stolen from him and it's been given to someone else who does not deserve it. See, the older son can't be happy because in his heart there is no room for the gift of grace. Only what's fair. No grace. And y'all, when you contrast the older son's heart with his father's heart. I mean, it just becomes clear as day. Look look again at the end of this parable, the end of the chapter. Remember the father says to him, Son, you've always been with me, and all that's mine is yours. 
Nothing, nothing has changed. Verse 32, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. The father says, we had to celebrate. He doesn't say, well, you know, the fattened calf was getting close to its expiration date. We really needed to eat it anyway. And so I thought, no, y'all, we had to do this. You know, the, the, the younger son had brought the whole world down around him. He had made a ruin of everything. He was as far down in the gutter as a human being can possibly be. But at the moment, the father forgave him and received him back. We had to celebrate. We had no other choice. You know why? Because God's heart is hardwired for grace. God is hardwired for grace. It's who he is. It's just who he is. And so when the older son refuses to enter into the party, he refuses to celebrate, it becomes clear that he doesn't share his father's heart. They're, they're having two entirely different conversations. They live in two different universes. The older son is only concerned with rules and scales of justice and fairness. He doesn't understand grace, and therefore he is far away from his father. You know, God's grace, we say this, I hope, often, every week. God's grace is the most wonderful thing there is. There's nothing that can touch it. Grace is the only reason we're even here right now. And yet, even as Christians, we can harden ourselves against God's grace, and refuse to celebrate it. Refuse to celebrate it when we see it happen around us, when we see it in others. Especially people that we don't think deserve it. Which, of course, is crazy, because grace, by definition, is undeserved. We didn't deserve it either, but we can flip the script on others and make an older brother mentality to dwell that pushes grace out of our hearts. Y'all, the older son is harshly rebuking his dad for being gracious. That's exactly what the Pharisees and scribes were doing at the beginning of Luke 15. They were rebuking Jesus for what? For receiving, welcoming, eating with sinners. They have no category for grace. And see, what it proves is that the religious folks, good and moral, upright as they were, they didn't know God at all. They lived very diligently for a God of their own making, a God who abides by our rules of fairness, a God who abides by our standards, and who rejects all the others who can't measure up. And y'all, that's just not the God of the Bible. The God that, that we see revealed in Jesus Christ is a God of abundant grace who will not abide by our standards, our merely human, legalistic, self-righteous standards. No. Y'all, T Tim Keller says it like this. The younger son was lost in his badness. But the older son, he was also lost 
in his goodness. And I know that seems strange to us, but that's, that's the obvious truth that we see in this parable. The younger son, when someone's off doing bad things, well, that's easy to call that sin. We see how bad he is. Of course, he needs to repent. Look at what he's done. But what about when someone is faithfully, dutifully doing all the right things, seemingly doing all the right things? We don't tend to apply to that person the same need for grace and mercy, do we? Because we, we sense that that person must already be in with God. Look, look at their life. Look how good they are. But Jesus applies the need for grace and mercy. Jesus does not let, let the religious people off the hook to say, well, you're fine. You're close. Maybe you just need a little nudge. No, they're just as far away, perhaps even further away from God in the end. Because here's the message of Jesus, that we all need His mercy. Exactly the same. The details of our lives may be different. We may appear better or worse on the surface, but we need the exact same mercy in the end. All of us. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody gets in good with God by simply doing what's right and receiving God's grace as a reward. No, it's not a wage that we receive because we've earned it. Salvation only comes as a free gift to those who cannot earn it, to those who receive it by faith. And so, y'all, shockingly, (laughs) this parable ends with the bad kid, the bad son, saved and in the party enjoying the feast while the good son stands outside the feast, lost, separated from the Father. This parable ends in a way that shocks our senses, that destroys our categories. If anyone deserved the party, it was the older son, right? That was his argument, but that's not how grace operates. Grace depends on trust in Christ. Otherwise, it can't be grace. Otherwise, it's something we have to do, something we have to achieve. No, but grace can only be received. We trust Jesus to receive it. And that's what redeems. That's what restores. That's what brings us in to the eternal presence of God. The older son is outside. The older son is lost in spite of all his goodness. Um, He trusted his own righteousness. He was doing all his good things ultimately for himself, not in joy and delight and love and relationship with the Father. And yet the Father is pleading, and I want to encourage us in this. Y'all, the Father is pleading with his Son. Why is Jesus telling this parable? Why is he specifically aiming at the Pharisees and the scribes? Jesus, in this moment, is pleading with them. He's doing the Father's work. In this sense, he's coming out to them to plead, drop your self-made righteousness. Drop this false idea of fairness and instead embrace the God of grace. Empty your hands of all the things you think you've done and all that you think you deserve so that you might freely receive all that Jesus has done for you. And and that's, that's my encouragement to us right where you are. You know, it's, it's much harder to see ourselves as the older son 
perhaps because it's, it's difficult for good moral people to see our need for grace. It just is. If you're in the ditch somewhere morally, spiritually, well, you know you need grace. But if you're good and buttoned up, if you're nice and polite, if you attend church, if you do those good things, right, then, then what need do I have for grace? That's the natural bent of the human heart. But in that case, we end up on the outside looking in because we're trusting ourselves, not Christ. We, we are risking duty over relationship. Serving God externally, but yet missing God's heart in the process. Well, that's entirely possible for us to find ourselves in that place. And we don't even know how we got there. But this is, take encouragement in how the story ends, y'all. I said, hey, the story ends with the older son outside the party. Yes, it does. But you notice the story doesn't really end at all. It's very anticlimactic. Jesus just shuts it off abruptly without a real resolution. We don't know what happens. And my sense is that Jesus does that very intentionally. He ends this way on purpose to leave the door open. He's pleading. Jesus is pleading right now with all the elder brothers out there. Drop your self-made religion in favor of a trust relationship with me. Jesus is leaving the door open right now for you and me. He's leaving the door open. The music is playing. There is feasting. There's dancing. The light is still on. The, the time is still opportune for those who are sinful and lost in the ditch as well as those who are good and faithful and feel like we deserve God's favor. We both need His grace, and we may both freely receive His grace and join the celebration. Regardless of where you find yourself right now, His grace is free. The time is now. Let's receive it and rejoice. Father, I pray this this morning that as we um, as we encounter this story, that we do see, Lord, at, the, at a deeper level, we see ourselves here. We're meant to. Um, a great many of us, especially if we were raised up in church, especially if we live a, a you know an honorable and good life that we just get locked into this cycle of what's fair, what's right, what, what I deserve, and what others don't. And in that case, Lord, we're, we, don't know, we don't have your heart. And we're not really living for you. We're not delighting in you. We're not living for a relationship with you, but perhaps we're treating you as a means to some other end, getting the, the things that we want or deserve. Um, Father, bring us in this case into what is true. Bring us into the light of your truth. That there is no earning our way into your presence. There is no entitlement in the Christian faith. There is no standing up, uh, angry and resentful, because we deserve better. Um, no, Lord, humble us. 
to see our deep need for grace. We need the same grace as anybody else. We're not better than anybody. We, like sheep, have all gone astray. But we are brought back. Our souls are redeemed and rescued by the great shepherd. And Lord, I pray if, we, if, we are, if we're able to see the grace of Jesus for what it is, if we're able to see Jesus pleading with us to receive it, uh, then Lord, you would make us humble, grateful, um, gracious people who reject self-righteousness, who reject entitlement, we don't sneer when you're gracious to other people because we know we're no better. We know our need is just as great as theirs is because we have understood your good news and we have received you, Lord. Uh, as, truly as sons and daughters. Lord, where we're, where we're prone to trust in ourselves, where we're prone, Lord, to, to, to think of the world only in terms of what's fair and what we deserve, Father, give us a, a crystal clear picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. The most unfair thing there ever was. And yet you chose it, Lord. You chose the cross to make us your own. You chose the cross to forgive us, to save us, to bring us in. Um, thank you, Lord, that you don't treat us fairly, that you don't give us what we really deserve, but you have given us what we could never earn or deserve. Pure mercy through your Son. And so, Lord, let it dominate everything about us. Let us become true sons of a heavenly Father, entering into His grace and being changed by it. We ask in His wonderful name. Amen.